got your Bible, go ahead uh, and actually, well, you can start with Joshua, but we will be doing a little bit of uh, recap since it's been uh, a couple weeks since we've been in our study doing an overview uh, of the whole of the Bible. Uh, and so it's been, what was it, three weeks ago we did Deuteronomy, we finished the Pentateuch, and now we're leading into the next major section of the Old Testament, which would be the historical books, and this is going to take us from Joshua uh, up through uh, Esther, and so we will be here uh, probably through the rest of the year, maybe a little bit into January. But I just want to bring to the forefront of our minds uh, the, what we've been looking at, because the Bible is uh, it's a collection of books, but it's also one unified And so we've been watching God at work in the Pentateuch, making promises and keeping those promises, and and they're all going somewhere. Uh, The the morning sermon uh, this morning, for those of you who were at 8.30 or those that are going to the 11 o'clock, you'll see is is Jeremiah making very clear that all of God's promises are are linked together. Dr. Phillips is going to draw in the promises to Abraham and to David and all of them, he's going to connect them all to the Lord Jesus. So this is all one unfolding story, but let's do a, a very, very brief recap of where we've been so far. And we'll start with uh, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Would somebody please read for us Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. And while you're turning there, just remind you, this is kind of the beginning of the promise to Abraham, which is really the big promise of the Old Testament, out of which everything is really going to flow. This is God calling him out of a pagan land. Genesis chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, going to 3. Mr. Duncan. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from, your, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Very good. So what did God promise Abram there? Promised him at least two things. Yep, very good. And and what else? Make him a great nation. Make him a great nation. So he promises him descendants. He promises him one other thing: descendants, blessings, and curses for those who either bless or curse his people accordingly. And one other thing. Anybody? Land. Land. Very good. So we've got land, we've got offspring, and then we've got God's provision watching over them with blessings and curses. And and Abram's going to go on for a couple chapters, and he's going to come to chapter 15, and he's going to say, God, how can I I know that you're going to do this? It's been a long time. It's been decades at this point. By the time you get to Genesis 15, he's got no kids. He's got no land. How can I know? And God, of course, uh, makes a formal covenant with him. But there's a very interesting part that often gets uh, glossed over. Would somebody read Genesis 15, 13 to 16? Genesis 15, 13 to 16. Mr. Johnson. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be soldiers in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the humans is not yet complete. All right. 
So this is going to be one we really want to keep in the back of our mind as we go through the lesson today, but a couple of things to, to draw out from there. Uh, one is he's reaffirming the promise of the land, but he also makes a prophecy here of, of what event. He says they're going to be sojourners in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. Anybody want to take a stab at what that's talking about? Egypt, very good. It's talking about their time in Egypt. And what does he say? He says, uh, of that land that, that, that afflicts his people, he will bring what? He will bring judgment on that nation. He's going to keep his promise to curse those who curse the people of God. And that when they come out of that nation, he will bless them through that nation. So let's look at how that falls out in Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 to 36. Exodus 12, 33 to 36. Can I get another volunteer? Mr. Cancino. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened. Their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on the shoulders. The people of Israel had done, had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked for. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. All right. So we see here God has, has, has performed the, uh, the, 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 the curses on the plagues on Egypt. And they said, Get out and take whatever you want. Just go. Because God has cursed those who have cursed his people. And he has also, through these same people, given his, his people great possessions, great inheritance, just as he promised. So we see these promises are unfolding and they're finally now on their way out of bondage from 400 years of, of, of slavery into or on their way to the promised land. And we've been really kind of uh, trekking that journey through the rest of the book of Exodus and when we studied uh, the book of Numbers not long ago. And then in the book of Numbers, you all know that uh, there is one, well, several notable things happen. There's a whole book of notable things that happen. It's the book of Numbers. Rather, uh, the generation that goes out of Egypt, despite having seen all of God's promises come to pass, they don't believe. And God says, this generation will not enter the land, but their children will. And there's one other uh, person that does not get to enter the land, and that is Moses. Moses himself, who does not honor the Lord as holy perfectly before the people, is told, you will not enter the promised land. And so the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, which was the Bible for a time before more was written, ends on this, on this note, Moses dying, looking out on the promised land. And they're getting ready to, to march in. And we've said, uh, especially when we studied the book of Numbers, that the New Testament, the book of Hebrews, really would equate us and our present circumstances with the Israelites in the wilderness, wandering, waiting for the city whose maker and builder is God. Hebrews chapter 11 says that. And so we are, are, are like them, not yet in the promised land. We, we do not presently dwell in the new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells, where we will be uh, with the Lord forever. We too are waiting for our inheritance, for our promised land. 
And as we closed the book of Deuteronomy, we said that it is Joshua who will lead them into the promised land. Does anybody remember what that name means? In the Old Testament especially, names have particular significance. Yes? God with us, not quite. That's Emmanuel. Joshua. It, it is Jesus, right? So, so it, the 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 Hebrew, or excuse me, the, the Greek transliteration is what we would call Jesus out of Joshua. But there's a there's an etymological meaning to it, which is the Lord saves, the Lord brings salvation, and in that same way that they follow. Joshua into the promised land as we will walk, as we will see in this book. We too are following Jesus into the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells. So that's kind of the, the big, broad picture of what's going on here. We're going to look at these sections. I've got the outline on the board for anybody that wants that. Um, I'm going to be totally honest with you. We're going to spend most of our time up here uh, with these first five chapters, and, and these we'll make some brief observations about, but the bulk of it is going to be up here. So let's go ahead and get started with crossing into Canaan, chapters 1 through 5. Uh, chapter 1 gives us the commissioning of Joshua, wherein the Lord tells him that he will be with him in the leadership of Israel, and that under him the people of God will come into their inheritance. He's famously told repeatedly in chapter 1, be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Why? For I am with you. Uh, but before that, he also makes the promise in chapter 1, verse 5, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so Joshua kind of serves in, in two ways. He's obviously a real historical person, but he also serves as a, as a type of the Lord Jesus, marching the people into the land, taking the victory, but also as a, as a picture of us, how we are to respond. The, the, the New Testament will apply these same verses to God speaking to us, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Fear not, for I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Joshua is a very uh, unique figure in the scriptures. And he's called to be strong and courageous because God is with him just as he is with us. And we've already said that, that the author of Hebrews uses it in this way. They are going to, to, to go in and they're going to defeat the, the enemies of the Lord. They're going to, they're going to conquer these peoples uh, in accord with God's promises. The point then is that we will see God commands them to do things in this book that, frankly speaking, are a little bit odd in the process because God wants them to know it is him who is giving them the victory. It is not they themselves. Uh, the, the best example of this is the way they conquered the city of Jericho. Anybody tell me very briefly how they did that? They walked around. They walked around the city, and then they blew the trumpet, and the walls came tumbling down. Um, that's a supernatural blessing. That's a supernatural giving. Yes, they were called to obey, but it is God who gives the victory. Uh, and that, that is to say that, that, that faith in the promises of God is a very key element that unfolds in these opening chapters. Uh, the first uh, evidence of faith that we see, the first big picture of faith, is actually from someone outside of Israel. It's from Rahab, the prostitute. And uh, just a, as a funny aside, uh, Rahab is, this story is always uh, a sentimental, significant thing to me because it's actually the first passage of Scripture that I taught in any formal setting. 
It was to it was to kindergartners, which is a little awkward to talk about a prostitute to small children. But we 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 got through it. And the point is, though, that that the Lord uh, honored her faith. The Lord honored her faith, even one who is outside of Israel. And I, I think we we want we want to see um, we want to see the content of her faith. So let me uh, point to a couple of passages in uh, in chapter two. Would somebody please read nine to fourteen? Chapter 2, 9 to 14. This is Rahab speaking. Uh, Miss Duncan. And she said unto the men, I know that the Lord hath given you the land, and that your terror is fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land faint because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when ye came out of Egypt, and when ye did unto the two kings of the Amorites that were on the other side, Jordan, Sion, and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we had heard these things, our hearts did melt, neither did there remain any more courage in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God, in heaven above and in earth beneath. Now therefore I pray, you swear unto me by the Lord, since I have shewed you kindness, that you will also shew kindness in my father's house and give me true token, and that you shall save alive my father and my mother and my brethren and my sisters and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. And the men answered her, Our life for yours, if ye utter not those business. And it shall be, when the Lord hath given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with thee. Thank you, Francis. So what's she saying there? She says, I know God promised to give you this land. I know the works of God, what he did in Egypt and to the other kings that you encountered on your march here. So I know that God has promised to do this. I know that he is able to do this. And I know that the Lord will show mercy to those who, what? Who are kind to his people, that he blesses those who bless you. Rahab knows the promises of God. She knows the, the covenant that God has made, and she is, is exercising faith in that. She's calling for mercy and offering to bless the people of God. This is a great picture of faith, even of someone outside of Israel. She knows what has happened. And then in chapters 3 and 4, this, this theme of faith, as they're preparing to enter into the land of Canaan, as they're preparing to enter the promised land, it really intensifies. Uh, they've got this, this new leader in Joshua. They've got inside information from the spies with the help of Rahab. But there's a, a few more things that are going to happen here. First of all, the people need to be reminded that they are receiving this inheritance in accordance with God's promises, not what they have earned. This is not a paycheck. This is an inheritance. They are getting it according to the covenant that God made with them, which is what he says in Joshua uh, 3, 10 to 11. And I'll, I'll read this one. And Joshua said, here is how you shall know the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. How are they going to know? Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. And then, and then they're told to, to set up these stones as a memorial uh, for this event. Uh, when we read through the book, Mark Dever explains, you will notice there are quite a few piles of stones. And every single pile of stones is a reminder to the people of the time when God was merciful and gracious towards them. And at the conclusion of this ceremony, 
God gives the people the explicit reason for what he has done so far and what he will do. In chapter 4, verses 23 to 24, he says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us all that we passed over. Why? So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. In other words, all that God has done up to this point and all he's going to do after this is for those two purposes, that the world might know that the Lord is mighty, that he is great, that they might uh, give glory to his name, and that you may fear the Lord. That is, God does all things for his glory and the good of his people. And with that purpose clear in mind, there is there is still one more uh, major event that happens before the end of the promised land. And it's in chapter 5. And we won't look at this in detail, but I'll just point out, and you can read this later. They worship. In response to God's declaration of his purposes, in response to his promises, they worship. They actually observe the Old Testament sacrifice, uh, sacraments. Um, Joshua circumcises this generation. Why might he have to have circumcised these grown men? Doesn't the Old Testament make clear that that's to be done for children? It does. Why? Who are these people? They're the children of who? The faithless generation that did not believe the promises of God. And that's just to point out, and I won't get into all the implications of this, that, that God's covenant promises were never only about an ethnic people. They were about those who would believe his promises and take hold of them by faith. Uh, and then they also observed the Passover. And then they're ready to enter the promised land, led in by, of all people, the commander of the Lord's army. And I don't have time to make the case for this right now, but myself, along with pretty much every other conservative commentator, takes that to be a pre-incarnate Lord Jesus. He is there with them to lead them into the land. All right, so that's that's crossing into Canaan. That's all the preparations. It's, it's drilled in over and over again. This is about faith in the covenant promises of God. That is how we're going to do this. And now actually entering into the land. Uh, this section of the book, we won't go into much detail, but I, I will just tell you at the outset, um, this is one of the most violent parts of the Old Testament. This is one of those parts of the Bible that, that skeptics and non-believers love to go to and say, how can you believe in a God that would command this? I don't like the sensationalizing of the language, but they would call this genocide because God's people are to go into the land and wipe everybody out. Not just the warriors, everybody. And I, I, I will not try and shrink back from that. I will not try to make that more palatable for us. It's what the Bible says. And before I get into how we ought to think about these things, I would remind you that this book, as we said at the outset, while it is a real historical event, it is also a picture of the return of Christ when, when we will inherit the new Jerusalem, the new heavens, the new earth, and the wicked will enter into destruction. This will something this this is a picture of, of a greater judgment that will come. But we want to make sure that we think rightly about these things. 
And so I've got, and I got this from Daniel Timner, who's an RTS professor. I forget which campus, doesn't matter for our purposes. Uh, he cares very much, I'm sure. Um, he gives us uh, some things to consider as we look at these harsh realities. One is that God is the owner of the land. This is why when we see them take the spoil, it's actually dedicated to him and not to them. God is the owner of the land, and he may give it to whomever he wills. It is his prerogative. It is not ours. Another thing to note, most of the Canaanite city-states, that's to say, all of these people that are going to, the, the, the people of Israel are going to go in and conquer, chose preemptive aggression over what Rahab chose, which was, uh, I know the Lord's word, I know the Lord's promises, I know what the Lord has done, and I would like to join the team. The word is out. How, how, if she knows, surely the leaders, the warriors, they know. And instead of choosing uh, to, to believe the Lord's promises, they instead chose aggression. They chose to attack. They chose to fight. On rare occasions, Canaanites do avoid military con uh, conflict because they fear the Lord and receive his grace. We see that in Rahab. And there's one other um, group that does this, and that's the Gibeonites in chapter 9. They, they say, now, it's a little deceptive. They say, we're not from here. We're just passing through, but we've heard about you guys, and, and we would like to, to establish a treaty with you. And Joshua accepts them because they come looking uh, in faith and repentance to, to the promises of the Lord. And God honors this act of faith to the point that they, the, the Gibeonites make a treaty with Israel and hundreds of years later, everyone's forgotten about this covenant except the Lord. Saul breaks the covenant. King Saul afflicts the Gibeonites against what the, the people of God had promised to do. Do you know what happens? The Lord curses the whole nation because they entered into a covenant with his people and his people broke it. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 21 um, at a later time. God honors those who come to him in repentance and faith. Now, one last point to, to bring out here. Actually, there's a couple more that are worth discussing. The primary reason for Yahweh's afflictions on these countries, on these nations, Nate Johnson actually read for us earlier, their iniquity, their <clears throat> sin. These are not innocent people. These are wicked People. In fact, we spent a lot of time in the book of Numbers talking about all the things that the Israelites were not to do in worship because that's what these people do in worship. And, and I'll, just, I'll just read this from Mark Dever. I think he sums it up very well. He says, Every time they hated one another or got drunk or worshipped the fertility god Baal through cult prostitution, they spent more of God's rich mercy. Every time they worshipped their god Molech by putting a knife through the hearts of their own children, or casting them into the, into the flames, they spent still more of God's mercy. Finally, God said enough. They had lived in this wicked rebellion for 400 years. That's a lot of grace. That's a lot of mercy. And they squandered it. The same standard of justice, actually a harsher standard, is applied to Israel. When they take possession of the land, 
They didn't get 400 years of apostasy before God brought judgment. Dr. Phillips is preaching Jeremiah when God brings judgment on the people of Judah. Do you know how long they got from the time they descended into apostasy? They got 344 years. They got less time. The people of the northern tribes, when they descended into apostasy before God sent in Assyria to judge them, got 208 years. God's standards are not about races or ethnicities. They're about faithfulness to him. And then uh, finally, the same standard of justice we also see applied directly to God's people, even in this book, uh, with Achan and his fall in chapter 7. And you can look at that later. So we, we, we need to think rightly about God's judgment. He is a just judge. And, and though it, it may seem... It is. It is wrath. But it is justice. And it is not as if they didn't have the opportunity to repent. And it's not as if God doesn't hold uh, his own people to the same standards. Now, the last thing that we'll note is when they are dividing the land. This section of the book, verses thir- or chapters 13 to 24, is hard in a different way than that last section. The last section is heavy matter. This is hard in that it's dry. <laughs> it's, it's these tribes go here, these tribes go there. This is how far it is for nine chapters, or actually 11 chapters, and that's a war. But the point is this. It's all summed up in the dividing of the land in chapter 21, verse 45. The point of going through all of that is to see this. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. The point of the the painstaking, excruciating detail of the division of the land is to show them that God did everything exactly as he said he did. And that's why Joshua ends on this, this this kind of cliffhanger, if you will. We have seen the faithfulness of God in giving the land, just as he said. The choice now is, will we serve him? Will we honor him? We've seen that he he blesses those who bless his people. We've seen that he curses those who curse his people. We've seen him give the land. We've seen him make the nation. We've seen him do all of this. And you and I have seen even more. We've seen, uh, we're, we're on the other side of the cross. We're on the other side of the resurrection and the ascension. We're on the other side of, of, of all but one of God's promises, which is the return of Christ. And the question is, will we serve him? That's the very famous verse that Joshua ends on, or it's towards the end. Joshua 24, 15. You probably have this in a plaque in your home somewhere. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And that's the question that it ends on for us. We have to, as as the people of Israel did long ago, answer that same question. Who are you going to serve? You can serve the God who is faithful, or you can serve the gods who are not even real. And we'll see next week in the book of Judges how Israel did with that. And uh, if anyone here is familiar with the book of Judges, you know uh, poorly is the answer.
Uh, let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for this great book um, that is, uh, is heavy, but it is true. And we ask, Father, that you would uh, help us as we are all at pivotal times in our lives, uh, determining um, plans for the future, uh, what type of lives we plan to lead. And as we contemplate that, I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to consider whom will we serve. And I pray, Father, by your grace, that you'd be pleased through your spirit to cause us to be those who would serve your son, the Lord Jesus, all of our days. In his name we pray. Amen.